Welcome to The Best Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Bradley H. Werrell, and we're here to explore options and potentials to help us grow as individuals and as a community with one another in these difficult times and challenging times. We're exploring all manner of potentials related to the human experience, physical, psychological, medical, spiritual. It's a wonderful opportunity that we now experience in this critical phase of our human evolution. And I welcome you to join us in our podcast, become more aware and identify with people who are helpful and supportive of you in your efforts as a human being on this planet and elsewhere too. We're going to be meeting people who are doing things that are widely variant from what is so-called normal within our society. In the creative space, within the social space, our common purpose, seeking to generate positive potentials to improve the lives of everyone in our sphere of influence and to expand that sphere of influence so that we may positively influence others that are not yet engaged directly with us. That's the goal here. We will learn more about each other as we go. I wish you the very best. Thank you very much for tuning in. Today we have uh, Dr. David Scrivina, a philosopher. And I don't know what specialty his philosophy is or if philosophy specializes in such a manner. I became aware of his work uh, by my nephew's hand. He suggested I read the Metaphysics of Technology which I found to be quite interesting. And I attempted to contact uh, Dr. Scrivina and uh, I wanted to talk to him at that time. He suggested that I read his next book, or I don't know if there's a pre-existing book or not, but it was the, uh, the Panpsychism of the West, which I found to be quite interesting and uh, excellent, uh, evocative of good thought and interesting um, discourse. We'll ask him to introduce himself a little bit more in detail. Yes, so thanks. Uh, again, thanks for having me on. Uh, happy to talk about it, for sure. Lot, lots of interesting uh, topics that we could cover here uh, in this general theme. Um, so yeah, so I've uh, been a professional philosopher since uh, 2001, received my PhD back then. Um, my, my general area of expertise has been uh, philosophy of mind, and that was what my dissertation was in. But even predating that, so I had a, a interest in other areas, which would include environmental philosophy, and I had worked closely as a, as a student with Henrik Skolomowski, who was a prominent environmental philosopher, and uh, and uh, he was also actually a, a, a philosopher of technology, actually one of the early skeptics about technology. And I was sort of studying technical fields as well at the time, my early days at the university. So, uh, so it made a natural sort of connection on, on several levels between philosophy, technology, the nature of the mind, um, and then the environment in general. So it was kind of this mixed bag of ideas that, that, uh, that I've been so, sort of pursuing uh, in the last several decades actually in my work. Um, so I guess I would say, uh, specifically, you know, um, trying to get the focus at the time when I was doing my PhD work, the dissertation work was on, on the nature of the mind, the human mind. 
trying to understand the ideas about uh, whatever, awareness, consciousness, what the mind is like, the notion of the will and so forth. And, and trying to sort of model these things. This was, this was sort of one of my early intentions. And I, and I was working with some early math, mathematical models that I had been, been drawing from my, in fact, my first degree, my master's degree is in mathematics. Oh, so, I went, so I went from there to philosophy. It was kind of an interesting jump. Um, so yeah, I, I, so I tend to think, tend to think about philosophical terms mathematically or, or analytically in that sense. And I was interested in chaos theory at the time, nonlinear dynamic theory, and, and I, was, I was trying to apply some ideas of chaos theory to the way the human mind worked. And there were some interesting parallels. We, we don't need to go into them here, but, but you know, basically you have, a, you have a brain with these uh, 100 billion neurons, and somehow you get this singular sense of consciousness, like you're one person, you have one mind and one focus and one viewpoint on the world. And I thought, well, this is kind of interesting. How, how is it possible? I mean, it's an old problem. How you get these billions of neurons that give you the singular focus, right? This the singular mind. And in chaos theory, it's actually kind of interesting because you can model a system with multiple elements, millions or billions of elements, and you can model them with a single, a single system. In fact, a single point that moves in a kind of mathematical space. So I thought, well, here's an interesting idea. Here, here's a math mathematical correlate. To, to this idea of, of having one mind emerging out of a complex large system. And I was sort of experimenting around and trying to trying to elaborate some of those ideas. And, and then sort of at some point it, it occurred to me that, you know, this, this model is, is completely general. The model that worked for the human mind and the brain worked obviously for an animal brain because they have neural cells and so forth. In fact, it works for any, any living thing because every living thing has a structure of cells and the cells are all exchanging en energy and information and they're changing state and you can still sort of model them in the same way. And then, of course, the model goes even beyond that because it's a general physical theory. So it talks about physical elements in nature. It could talk about, uh, yeah, you know, anything, uh, pl planets within the solar system. It could talk about atoms within a, uh, a lump uh, of dirt. Uh, I mean, any, any sort of physical system can be modeled on the same way and would, would essentially come to the same conclusion that you had this kind of singular awareness point that was correlated with this physical system. It's not just the brain. There's, of course, there's nothing magic about the brain. It's just a special, it's a complex system, but it's not, we would say it's not ontologically unique or it's not metaphysically unique. So this little model of chaos theory, uh, it was immediately just like one of these little insights, a little flash of awareness, right? That like, well, this model applies to everything. And so the obvious implication is, well, you know, everything has this sort of aspect of, of something, some mind or consciousness or something. And I'd like, wow, that's kind of a strange idea, you know? And, and uh, at the time I, I was really t uh, completely unaware that it was a long-standing idea. I didn't even know the term panpsychism. Uh, it just sort of dawned on me that the model was completely general and, and should apply to anything. And so then when I went to the, uh, to the process of doing my dissertation research uh, for the PhD, uh, I, I started elaborating on similar ideas and sort of looking in the, the history of the philosophy of mind and, and actually looking for these things. And it was really to my surprise that I was finding, finding a lot of these little elements in, in famous philosophers in history who were also coming to a similar conclusion namely that there was nothing unique about the human organism 
and that whatever this thing called mind was, or psyche, as they would say, uh, you know, going back in time, uh, whatever this thing was, it should apply uh, broadly, maybe very broadly, maybe universally throughout nature. So that, that really led me to this idea of panpsychism and kind of really examining what, what does that mean? What, what, what are the implications? What are the theories about it? What are the arguments for it? And, uh, and so, yeah, that, that's, that was a, a, was a small piece of my dissertation work. And then I took that small piece and I expanded it into, into my book, which was Panpsychism in the West. And that was published in 2005, which was really the first systematic study of the field that had ever been done. Uh, no one uh, had really ever explored in detail the history of this idea going way back to the, the earliest Greek philosophers and even, even the pre-Socratic philosophers. Um, uh, it's really a, kind of a striking history. And that was kind of a launching point for, I think, for kind of a resurgence in panpsychism, which has been going on ever since. We, we see increasing interest in it. There's new books being published. Um, they do conferences uh, and they talk about the subject. So it's... Uh, yeah, it's really kind of a, 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 a re-exploration, a return to this ancient idea that we had lost, we'd forgotten about it, and now we're coming back to it. I like that. And the, the interesting thing, I, and, and I enjoyed the book immensely, and it's like, it's like, so you sort of accidentally tripped and fell into this stream that a pre-existing thought, and then explored the stream up to the headwaters, and the, I'm impressed by it. I, I very much enjoyed it. And among the things that I enjoyed the most was like the, I, I, I am um, uh, a deliberate fan of etymology of words. And you, you explored that in that book wonderfully. And, and, and in other books too. And uh, the, I, in my work, I studied what happened to America for four years, about five years now. And I quit studying, but I, I, uh, I stumbled onto uh, the study of the Hebrew language. Which is it, it maps to your metaphysics of uh, of technology, which you map to the ancient Greek translation of Genesis, techne logos, which is barashit uh, in uh, Hebrew, which can be translated as Genesis or as make discourse. And it's like, well, who makes discourse? Well, it's the second one to the rest, and the second one to the rest is the individual mind mapping to or conversing in in reality generating the reality that we dwell in which i i go that says everything i need to hear because it's like that map to your panpsychism in a sense and i'm like okay what's that mean well when you kind of keep on you back up a little bit and you try to understand it and um i'm very interested in what do you have a name for the model that you created for the mind Yes. Uh, well, yeah, I do. I I, I call it hylonoism. Hylonoism. <clears throat> so so. No, I'm like wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, there there's a there's an old word hylozoism. Right. So hylo hylo comes from hyle, which is means matter basically, and 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 zoism is zo or zoe from Greek, which means life. So there was this ancient idea that matter was alive. Hylozoism. And, uh, and, and it's a little bit of a, it's an, it's an archaic term. They don't really use it anymore. It's kind of a pejorative at this point to, to call the ancient Greek philosophers, call them hylozoists. So I said, well, you know, the, actually, it's not that things were alive. It's not that matter's alive. Actually, that matter has this noetic or, or, or uh, noose, you know, uh, mental quality. 
So I prefer the word noose uh, rather than zoe. So rather than hylozoism, I said, well, let's call it hylonoism. So it's a hylonoetic kind of theory. So I, I've used that term on occasion. I'm not writing it down. I appreciate that. And it's like the, um, the it's a very interesting uh, background of mathematics and then to philosophy and then, then mapping and modeling and then creating a general, uh, generally functional model and awareness, your internal awareness that now you project out in uh, your other work and you discovered the, the, the vein of it throughout. Uh, the, 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 I guess the mental activity of the historically is fascinating to me. So now you you were a uh, professor for some time and now you're retired. Is that correct? Well, right. So I, I taught at a number of universities here in Michigan. I'm living in Michigan now. Um, uh, the the main uh, my main assignment was at the University of Michigan at the Dearborn campus. I taught there for 15 years from 2003 to 2018. Um, yeah, so then I left there end of 2018 to sort of, uh, to not really retirement, but just to pursue other options because I had some other connections, some other things I wanted to do in the sort of the, the next 10 years. Um, so I've been doing uh, uh, just more independent research, some, some uh, working on publishing some papers and chapters. Uh, <clears throat> well, sort of my latest work has been, been with a group of people in Finland. So I made some connections with, uh, with a couple of fellows at the University of Helsinki. And uh, they're in the area of sustainability studies. And they're sort of worried about environmental issues and population and technology in terms of a sustainable society thing. That's a, quite a hot topic in Europe these days, as it should be. Um, and, and, uh, and they were curious about this technology angle. And, and they sort of understood that we can't really get to a sustainable society unless we get a handle on the technology. <clears throat> because there's a sense of which technology is sort of the root cause of, of most or all of our uh, environmental problems and so, even social problems. I mean, it really is a, is, a, is a deep issue that this question of what technology does in society. And so, so the, the group in Finland, they were, they were aware of this. <clears throat> But they didn't really have the background, the, the, the critical background on technology to, to really to go where they wanted to go. So they got in touch with me. They, they actually organized a conference on the topic and I, they sent out a general invite and I got a hold of it. And I went over there a couple of years ago and, and uh, gave a talk, gave a paper. We made some good connections. <clears throat> and so they asked me to sort of come back and stay in touch with the group and, uh, and to focus on the question of sustainability and technology and new models, say, say maybe new social models or new technological models that would move forward that would be more sustainable, more environmentally benign and so forth. So, so we've been in touch for the last couple of years pretty much continuously. I was there actually last fall. I taught a master's level course on technology and sustainability uh, in Helsinki which was uh, well, it was a challenge in itself to get there just because of the pandemic situation. So I was quite lucky I, I made it there. Um, <clears throat> and uh, we're talking about uh, future classes maybe next, next fall as well. So <clears throat> with luck, I'll be able to uh, go back and teach again uh, in the fall there. That's very interesting. Uh, it's a, the, the, I'm not, I, I probably did a poor job as an undergraduate and I will admit to it right now publicly. 
the um, the fascinating function to me is like I I uh, I was I did not enjoy the uh, the academic experience very much, and, uh, and certainly not as much as I could have or or think I should have. But that's you know hindsight twenty twenty but the uh, the so the the there's an opacity to me to my eye with regard to academic career paths. And, and it's like, so you, you did the professor thing and then you went beyond the professor thing and now you're doing, you're teaching classes and engaging intellectually with groups. I, I think that's wonderful. And it's like, it's like um, that career path is like glutted out with huge numbers of competitors on gold. And I'm sure, I don't know if philosophy is, but it's like, I hear stories of like 200 applicants for every position in the academies. For every opening, for every new new position, yeah. Well, yeah, right. I mean, cert I think certainly probably all of humanities they're overproducing PhDs because this is sort of what they do. They get to this mode of producing doctorates, you know, uh, at least in the last uh, 10, 10, 20 years, and uh, there's a huge overproduction. Um, uh, so yeah, you have far more supply than demand, and I mean, I mean, it's literally hundreds. If they get openings for for let's say a tenure track position in, in philosophy, they get. 300 or 400 applicants. I mean, it's just insane, right? Um, plus, I mean, I mean, it's still a lot of things going on. Philosophy there, you know, it's uh, it's not uh, it's, it's not like a business school. You know, it's not drawing in money. It's not drawing in research funds. And so, when universities get squeezed for budget, they sque squeeze the humanities because it's not producing any income for them. Um, so, so there's this downward pressure on, on the humanities. Um, they don't get the budget, they don't get the attention, they don't get the support. Um, the, the interest is there. The students are interested in it because it's really something unique and different uh, for them. Um, but the university is just that they don't see it as a moneymaker. So, so they don't give it the support. There's too much supply. There's not enough demand. They've been, like everywhere, they've been outsourcing a lot of jobs to uh, lower level instructors, they, they go to, you know, non-PhD, they can do adjunct faculty that have master's degrees and they teach for a third the price. And, you know, so if you're following the corporate business model, which a lot of the universities do, you just go for your cheapest option. And uh, yeah, so it's, it's not a good sign all the way around, all the way around. So, I mean, it, it's, it, it was nice to be able to do it, but it, uh, in my case, it's nice to be able to pursue these other options as well. And uh, oh, yeah. so, yeah. So my my uh, my dad was a professor of history. He retired in '96, I think. And um, now he told me that they had been overproducing PhDs since then, since the '60s, late mm. '60s. It's like they were the glut started. He said he probably got the last academic job for historians in in America back in 1970. And it's like you know it's like overproduction for 40 years. Which is like four fifty years, which is you know it's, it's amazing. But what you know, what's to what's to be said about it? So it's like that one. Um, so I I was uh, soured on academics because I listened to my dad come back and talk about the uh, the hiring and the, the behavior of the administrative organs of the system, and I'm just like, okay, I'll go I'll do something else. And I, it seems like the the academics are very good at writing. Which is how you end up being able to write books, and I'm like very impressed by the skill of it, right? And so I'm going to back up a little bit here because I'm like, this is what's interesting to me is that we talk about technology, and and um, I'm 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 reading a book by uh, Peter Turchin on um, social development 
um, at frontiers. And it's like the, the premise of this is that at the frontier, there's a great mixing and a, and a conflict between social systems, which is a form of technology in my mind. Like even, even if we look at like an individual, it's like the, the, the conceptualization you have of something or the world is a form of technology. Like how you talk about it is a technical operation. Is that map to your thinking? So, so, you know, I kind of, what I, what I became interested in here very, like within the last week, and I, I, I talked about it briefly before we began recording, which is that the, 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 the construct of mind as uh, being um, co composed of conscious consciousness, which words stem from about 1600 AD, science being of a similar stem or one of the stems of conscious stemming from 1400 AD and then that is predated by the 1200 AD conscience so knowledge of right and wrong and I'm interested in um, exploring that a little bit with you because it's the panpsychism suggests consciousness but it also suggests conscientiousness I think in some fashion and I'm like I'm interested in that Although it, it is a fresh cut on um, how to how to think about it with, from from my perspective, so I haven't done a whole lot of thinking about it, but I, I do think it has uh, relevance in this context. Well, yeah. So, um, right. I mean, that that this is, it raises a lot of questions, right? So you want to know. Well, what is consciousness? I mean, this is an old problem in itself, just on the human level. What, what, what is this thing, you know? And it has these strange sort of qualities to it and you get the qualitative feel of things and the sensory impressions of things. And these are sort of indescribable. You, you can't really put in words, you know, what chocolate tastes like. You just sort of have to do it and you know it and that's what it is. I mean, you know, this, so there's things that are like inexpressible about consciousness, right? And, and, uh, um, and there's just kind of this general awareness. I mean, you know, how, how do you quantify this being aware? Because obviously we, we move in and out of different states of awareness. And when we're normally awake, you have normal awareness. And when you're sleeping, it's a kind of a subdued or a restrained kind of awareness, but it never quite goes away. It's kind of an interesting sort of thing in itself. So we shift to these different modes of awareness. So even just, you know, just for crying out loud, the human consciousness is a, is a, is a hugely difficult animal just to figure out what this thing really is. Uh, and then you, then you sort of add to the complexity if you, if you take a panpsychist view and you, and you look at other things, animals or plants or inanimate things. And, and you sort of ask, you know, what, what are these things thinking? What are they experiencing? If there's a psychic quality, what does that actually mean? Because it, it gets to sound pretty crazy. You know, you're talking about a rock or an atom or something. And it's like, you know, it's almost impossible to talk about, but of course it's impossible to talk about for ourselves. So, so the fact that you can't talk about what it means to be a, a conscious rock doesn't really hold any water because we can't talk about really what it means to be a conscious human. We're barely able to describe that. So I don't let that bother me in the least. That's good. Um, you know, um, um, so, I mean, there's a, sort of that, there's that whole aspect. If you relate it to conscience, which is a kind of a, it's interesting because that's sort of a moral quality, right? This conscience of, like you say, right and wrong or good and right. bad or something like this. Right. Um, so I'm going to point to your friends in Helsinki, okay? 
and they want sustainability and it's like yes yeah their conscience is bothered by the technical misapplication of technology which i regard as a see enlightenment uh error or uh, not enlightenment so much as reformational error which is um the stripping away of the moral uh imperative as we go from study or awareness of conscience to uh consciousness absent moral consideration and i'm like yeah we're what we we're trying to reapply the morality because uh clearly we appear to have gone down a right rough road right and it's like yeah. so it is it is it's not so much that the chocolate tastes like chocolate but is it the right thing to do right now right <laughs> and that's sure. what that's, so it's like this so that's it's I change. I have a I have a little story that I like to tell about. Uh, it's a psychological joke. Okay, so why did the chicken cross the road? Right, because the other side was better, is what I used to say, and we know it was better because that's where the chicken went. Okay, and it's like that. I changed the story after I became aware of this conscious, conscient, conscientiousness as the stem of, of uh, awareness, and it's like this. Why did he cross the road? Because it was the right thing to do. Same answer. Why do you think the evidence is that he went there? Right? Yeah. Of course, it could be the wrong thing if he got, you know, some tiger agent over there. But that's. <laughs> right. That's well, a... yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, it, again, there's a sort of a long history of these kind of ideas, right? And, and um, you know, to, to me, I like to focus on on sort of these key innovations. And, and, and one of the key guys was Leibniz. So he's a German philosopher from the late 1600s, early 1700s. And, and he was a panpsychist as well. He talked about the monads, right? Which were basically like atoms, more or less. And, and uh, he described them in, in a remarkably modern scientific terms. This is the late 1600s. They didn't even know there were atoms back then, but he's describing them and they're, they're very similar. And he says, uh, you know, he's going through a list of what these monad characteristics are, what they're like, what, what characteristics they have. And he says, uh, oh, by the way, they have a soul, right? So, okay, so this is kind of interesting, right? Um, and, and, and then he says, you know, well, he's kind of like, well, what do we mean by a soul? What, what could that mean for an atom? He says, well, it means two things. And he called it perception and appetite. Hmm. So he said all, everything, right, from humans right down to the atoms, have these two basic qualities of the mind. They perceive, they're aware of their surroundings. They have like little sensors or feelers that go out, out into space. And they can perceive around themselves. That's one. Appetite is, a, is an old, a sort of an archaic word that basically means uh, wanting, desiring, right? Ap an appetite it means today you want some food or something, but it generally means wanting. So, so what, it, what it really is an expression of the will. So what Leibniz was saying that everything in the universe ha perceives, has an awareness of its environment, and it wants, it has a will. That's really what he was saying. And for him, these were the two core qualities of any, any mind from the simplest to the most complex. And even to, I mean, again, that was a remarkably modern insight, even today in philosophy of mind, there's kind of this theory that you have, um, uh, you know, will-based uh, intentional, we would say intentional qualities, which include will and, and, and desire and these kind of things. And then you have perceptive qualities like uh, awareness and qualia and qualitative states and so forth. So even today in philosophy of mind, we still sort of accept this, this, this di dichotomy between the will, the willing aspects and the awareness aspects. 
And, and it seems to be these sort of the two dimensions or the two irreducible components of what it means to have a mind. And it goes back at least to Leibniz and maybe even, even earlier. I mean, there's sort of roots of it that go back to Plato and, and even older. Um, so, um, so to me, this is like a really helpful kind of guide to think about these kind of things, sort of like, you know, like you say, the chicken want, wanting to cross the road. And we see this in any living thing. And even in non-living things, we see an expression of a kind of a will if only, uh, and, and the old philosophers recognize this too, if only in the fact of the, the things want to persist, right? I mean, things that are a physical structure, they hold together, right? I mean, you know, take a rock, right? You got a rock, that, the rock doesn't do much, but it wants to stay together, right? And that sucker, he's, he's strong, right? You can hammer that guy and he's not, you're gonna really smash that guy to break him apart. So that rock, he just wants, to, he, he wants his structural integrity. If there's anything he wants, he wants to see. And that's pretty much how, you know, when you see systems in nature, they have this persistence. And, and you say, well, look, that's really kind of an expression of their will. That's really what they want. They want to per persist and be sustained as long as possible, you know, in, in the form that they're in. So you get these kind of in interesting aspects that you can correlate to physical qualities that we think are, are the, the, the corresponding aspects of mental qualities. Yeah. Yeah, I like that, and it's a integrity is it goes with will. There's no question about it. It's like integrity, and um, there's another one. It's a physical term. It's uh, inertia, right? There's a certain inertia to to all, all things in some fashion, right? Um, I, I I studied some symbology related to uh, alchemy, which I think is interesting in this construct, which is. Uh, the, the, a delta symbol, so an equilateral triangle with the point up, is um, fire being the alchemy. And if you put a plus sign under it, it is the symbol of the soul and also of um, sulfur, which is a, so it's like, what is it inside that causes the change that you perceive of the thing? And it's like, it is, it is the, the energetic component that is indwelling within the thing, whatever the thing may be at any level. And I'm like, that's what we're talking about here, which is the, the, the percept, the universal nature of perception with appetite. And when, when you say appetite, it suggests to me um, um, affinity towards something. And, it, and it's, uh, that, like that's what you, that's what you see in physical things, right? Physical, physical forces, what are physical forces? They're an affinity, a connection, or a repulsion. That's all they are. They're either pulling together or pushing apart. And either way, it's a, it's a kind of an, like you say, it's an affinity. It's a kind of a will, willing uh, entity, right? I mean, this was, a, even Schopenhauer is kind of famous. He, he did lots of analogies. He said, look, all the forces of nature are just manifestations of the will. That's really all they are. They're either a, 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 an attractive affinity or a repulsive, repelling affinity but they're still manifestations of will. So that goes right down to the forces of nature. That's right. So, so, so it's interesting, we can go back to um, uh, errors of technology that your friends in Helsinki are after here. And yeah. I might discuss that a little bit with more um, alchemy and, and ancient Hebrew or maybe modern Hebrew, but my studies have shown this. So I studied this as fire. How do you get someone to do the wrong thing? So you, you cause them, you're going you're gonna to cause them to do the thing they know to be wrong. So it's anti-conscious conscientiousness. But, and their consciousness is going to positively engage 
because we're going to override that by addition of fire to the situation. So what is the as fire? And the Hebrew for that is ash. And that is the, uh, that just, I like, I like I said, I in a million billion years, I never thought the study of Hebrew would be worth anything to me. And I'm like, man, it's so ultimately revealing of the basic under underpinnings of what is that I'm, I'm truly in awe of it. Because it's like this, that's, it, the people do the wrong things because they are incentivized to do so by the social systems that we have generated. And it is like, okay, so we reward people for doing the wrong things. They're going to do the wrong things. At least, you know, in the aggregate sense, we'll get some of them doing the wrong things at some price. Sure. And it's like, so, so the Helsinki guys are like trying to figure out how to un, to be incentivized doing the wrong thing somehow. And I'm like, that is no small task. <laughs> Well, right, exactly. I mean, you right in the social realm, you have lots of structural problems. You know, you have this orientation orientation towards growth, so you have economic growth, right? You have the the have the growing consumption of energy and in you know material flows, and you have capitalist tendencies towards growth because every corporation, which is a business entity, wants to grow. I mean, talk, talking about the will. I mean, there it is, right there. You see it in corporate activities, in bureaucracies. Um, you know, even human populations there obviously there's this tendency in any animal population to, to grow. So, so yeah, when you look at really sustainable societies, you, you have to grapple with these expressions of, of the will, right, of, of corporate and, and, and biological entities that really want to expand and, and grow and consume resources. And uh, yeah, I mean, at, at a small scale back in ancient times, that's not an issue, but today, when you have large corporations and 8 billion people on the earth and powerful technology at your disposal, then all these ancient, uh, you know, motivations, they become highly destructive. I mean, they worked well for a while and then they turn against you. And so this is, this is a huge battle that we're up against, right? Trying to understand these, these forces that are deeply rooted, but have now turned against us and have to somehow be restrained or channeled in a different direction so that so that sort of everybody can survive because otherwise you know it looks very bad in the long run um okay this seems to point to um nietzsche a little bit to me guilt to our minds right like what's that guilt to our minds the will to power the will, will to power yeah from nietzsche yeah yeah, yeah. We're right and it's like um we're back in the jungle again right it's like this the the, the, the teeth and nail is rough and it's like what's that mean how do we restrain these um, forces um it is the um the the unethical application of powerful technologies to uh dominate the uh other uh participants in the jungle the uh system and it's like this um points to, uh, I, I would call this as like, natural law is like the, the premise that, that um, we know how to behave properly in an ethical fashion and cooperate with one another and minimize the amount of friction that we have in our interactions. And that's natural law. And that's what we should be striving for so that we achieve a um, reasonable, uh, agreeable solution to our social problems and it's like the 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 
unethical, have, have chosen uh, manners to restrain and constrain and apply force to the situation, which is the same issue in a positivist way to create restraints on cooperation and to prevent cooperation in as many ways as possible so as to monopolize the uh, interactions between people for uh, the gain of the, I guess, the ownership class. And that's what, we're, that's, that's how I look at it. And I'm like, you know, the, the question is how do we um, resume or, or uh, trend towards a more natural state, which, which is, requires a moral underpinning that is with ethics as opposed to absent ethics. So I'm back to conscientiousness versus mere consciousness, which is uh, no, we don't want mere consciousness. We want, we want the conscientious application of science and technology universally. Mm -hmm. So we don't have, because it costs too much to force people, just like this, we're, we're going to go back to the ancient Hebrews like cash. If I got to keep on cashing out to make everybody do the wrong thing so I profit, that's going to get expensive, which is probably why we have these episodic crashes economically, because it's like, it's just, okay, it's, it's predictable. And cyclic, it's like, yeah, it's costing much to crash the system and you go set it up somewhere else with what you took away, what you rooted out of the last situation. And so I'm like, I think that's what has been occurring. That's, and I, I, I tend towards conspiratorial. My dad can't talk to me as a professor. I'll tell you this, this is, I tell stories on my dad. I feel bad, I shouldn't do that, but I will. I asked him the question, I said, you know what? It occurs to me that if you think what I'm talking about is a conspiracy or a conspiracy theory, that it does not matter how much evidence I bring to bear. And he agreed with that and I was shocked and I'm like, wow, okay. That tells me all I need to know. It's like you're, it's the gatekeeper has closed the door, right? And you're not getting in the academy with that one, buddy. <laughs> and it's okay. But yep. the, the issue though is, is I think that we're, we're at this point where we, we have to discard consciousness as an even interesting thing but, and, and adapt uh, conscientiousness. Back to, we're back to 1200 AD. We must have made a long turn to that that time figure. Also yeah, exactly. Right. I mean, you know, you, you definitely need to reintegrate that moral or ethical component. Right. I mean, and, and, and not just in the human sphere. That's this is where the environmental piece comes in. Right. So, uh, you know, much of my work when I teach environmental ethics is, is trying to, to make the case that, look, you, you need to take these same moral concepts and moral principles and moral consideration and extend them to nature as well so that you don't get this narrow focus on what's good for human beings. And then you, you leave out all the other guys, all the animals and the plants and nature at large. Um, and, and then you will make, you, you will end up with bad outcomes, right? You try to narrow, narrowly benefit one species and you penalize the other species uh, or the system as a whole. And that this of course is, is, is a negative outcome. So, so, so another aspect of what I do is try to extend the, these ethical concepts in, in a rational way to, to all of nature, right? To, to animals and plants and the biosphere as a whole, which makes a nice connection to the panpsychism actually, because you can say, well, look, these things are end-minded things. They are, they are aware, they're conscious. Maybe they have a conscience as well, right? So they have sort of their own ends in themselves. And so there's an actual literal basis to treat them as valued ethical entities because they have this kind of 
mental quality that's in, uh, fundamentally the same as our own, maybe not as complex and not as elaborate, but, um, but it's still there like, like we do. So we actually have a real philosophical or metaphysical basis for valuing these things in nature and including them in our ethical schemes in a way that maybe we, we've never really had before. So that's another way of extending the ethics to the whole, to the whole planet and then, and then acting on that basis. I like that. The, the, what that um, I resonate with that in this construct, which is when we talk about the mind, we think about it as a noun. And I'm like, it also is a verb to mind. And it's like, yeah, the universe minds. And it's minding what you're doing and, and it, what you're inattentive towards is also, uh, it's making notes and minding. And you will be brought to, uh, to uh, some kind of uh, judgment with regard to uh, how well you minded your business, right? And it's like, so it's, it, it, it certainly goes to the panpsychism. I'm, I'm very excited about the, the premise of it. And, and I'm like, um, yeah, it is, it's quite a challenge though. It's like, the, the, I'm not, I, I would regard it as an intentional function, which is the uh, demoralization of the population in the general sense, distraction of them and the application of technologies that are designed to addict them to things that are not good. And I specifically am going to point to uh, social uh, media, which had neuroscientists helping them to create little dopamine pushes when you're uh, participating in their addictive uh, software, which has been discussed by uh, former executives of those institutions, which is absolutely abusive technology, in my opinion, which is like, it's not hard to cause someone to be addicted to something. Especially unwittingly, you know, it's like you don't know what you're getting. You're just interested in it and you don't know why, but the dopamine keeps coming, so it must be all right, right? And it's like, but um, so the, the humans are, um, yeah, it's, it, it's a predatory function of technical, technical systems that are uh, without consideration of the, the moral basis of it all, right? And so, so, Shoot, I don't know where that leads us. <laughs> well, right. I mean, you know, it, it exploits people. It exploits their abilities and their interests and their desires and their needs, right? And, and, and technology, technological systems are very good at exploiting people's weaknesses in that sense, right? So it, it plays upon them and it feeds your, you know, your little sense of ego and whatever and your sense of wanting friends and all those connections and so forth. And, and so it, it really, it really kind of sucks you in. I think it's, it's really gotten good at, at, the, at the hitting the, the little buttons, uh, psychological buttons that, that motivate people to do these things. Right. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, you know, for, for myself, I, I, uh, I'm interested to study this. I, I, I try to stay unplugged from these things as much as possible. You know, I mean, I, I kind of do the minimum I'll do, uh, you know, conference calls and email, but um, Right. I, for my for myself, I don't do any social media. I don't use my I don't have a cell phone that that I use in any sense. Um, I mean, so I'm I'm really trying to keep keep aloof from these things to make sure that that uh, you know you don't get to. I'm already I spent already enough time you know writing and communicating and so forth. But uh, the you know the last thing I need is is these other these other draws on my attention. So I'm on the page. I'm on the same page as you, and it's really interesting. So I like have this. I have the. I have I hire people to help me to uh, generate the uh, it is it is this uh, digital manifestation of my 
presentation, right? <laughs> it seems like it's the the, the, the the advent of the computer that kind of, uh, we have a digital representation and it's how we manage the digital representation as best you can. And it's like, for most of us are just hopefully inadequate in even considering how to, even thinking of managing it is, is I think people actively engage with it without constructing in the mind of uh, a management. It's a managed process. They just do it um, instinctually, kind of, or at the mercy of their um, their uh, reptilian brain, perhaps. I don't know. Right. So fascinating. And um, but but you know one one of the interesting things to me is that that when when you feed into these technological processes, um, you you tend to get the opposite of what is being expected. And this is one of the things I wrote in my book on the metaphysics of technology, is, is that uh, technology has this funny way of, of tricking us, of fooling us into promising us one thing and then delivering the other, which to me is really a kind of a striking phenomenon. And, and, and it goes back to the, even the old, you know, hundreds of years ago, we were saying, well, what was, what was mechanization supposed to do for humans? And it was supposed to save us time, save right. us labor, save us time, give us time to live our lives, and so forth. And this was sort of the original promise of technology, right? Uh, and then the machines came along and they did the work and they displaced people and they did more and more and more work all the time. And, and, and so we're, what's happened to our time? It, it's, been, it's, been, it's been crushed, it's been compressed. It's not like we're all living this life of leisure. No, no, we're all working faster, harder, more stressed than we've ever been, right? So, so it, you know, promises these wonderful labor-saving things, and it delivers something kind of opposite, a society that's sort of hyper-driven into overdrive, where people are, are sort of, you know, driven at this insane pace to, to keep up with the machines. So it actually got the opposite of what you were expecting. I understand that. And I'm like, uh, so, so the, uh, there's two interpretations of that process. One of them is innocent, and I regard it as naive. And the other one is cynical, which I regard as real. And it's like this. So what you call a flaw of the system, I would call it a feature for somebody that's not either one of us. Does that make sense? And it's like the, the issue is to uncouple um, ourselves from those who are cynically abusive of the rest of us with the technology. Which point, that points me at, I saw that you wrote a book about Theodore Kaczynski. And I guess it, his book, his, his treatise, which was the uh, fate of industrial nations, right? And I, I, I found it to be interesting because I resonated with it in regard to, um, we talk about hierarchies of uh, competence. So, so, so we have hierarchy, hierarchical structures, corporations, et cetera, in, in the, uh, the civilization. And it's like this, I think that one of the things that turned me off about the uh, academy was that I did not regard it as a hierarchy of competence but as a social promotion scheme disguised as a hierarchy of competence. Which is like when you've got 300 people applying to the uh, position, I just need reasons to throw out 299 of them. And it's like, there's gonna be one that fits my um, social promotion plan, which would be like um, Antonio Gramsci's theory of uh, Marxist domination of the hierarchical institutions for the purposes establishing cultural hegemony, which I think appears to have gone quite well as a plan since 1937 when he died. And I'm like, that's my, I, that's what I see. And I'm like, I regard myself as cynical and conspiratorial in mindset, which is to say that's bias and that's, that's fair disclosure. 
And it's like, well, I don't expect everybody to adapt my uh, point of view, and, I, and I'm okay with that, which is good because it's like good luck with it anyway. <laughs> but, uh, but, it, but the interesting function of it is this, is I think we're on the same pathway, which is the, uh, where, where whether or not the forces that are operating to cause the technology to be applied in a manner that is destructive, Either way, it, either either it's unintentional or it's intentional. It doesn't matter. It's here. How do we decouple and move forward in a way that is ethical and appropriate given the circumstances? Right. Yeah. Well, well, you know, one one of the hallmarks of technological systems is they is they really develop this kind of momentum on their own, which is really a stunning kind of thing, right? And, and it goes under this general heading called technological determinism. Yep. Which, which, which is really this idea that it's kind of a self-driving system and has its kind of own incentives and its own momentum built into the system. Um, and, and this has been recognized for many years by, by philosophers and others who thought about how technology and, and industrial systems work in general. And, and uh, I mean, so, I mean, in the one sense, you have leaders and people who are driving these entities, but they also are also kind of self-driven in some strange sort of way. And they lead to inevitable and 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 uh, yeah, maybe even unconscious outcomes, maybe that nobody's really planning on, but you get them anyway because it's the nature of an advanced technological system. So so it is this funny mix of, I think, like you say, sort of intentional and unintentional. These these processes are working in parallel, and and it can really make a kind of a yes, yeah, like a bizarre, like a spooky kind of a system that's driving things to nefarious ends or to you know bad, bad outcomes and and it's not entirely because somebody wants it that way i mean it's just be, because these are these are more than human systems sort of literally i mean they're based on computers and internet and en energy flow and information these are more than human systems and they lead to outcomes which are necessarily not in human interests which means they lead to bad outcomes from our perspective maybe it's good for the system but it's bad for us and, and I think we get these things whether we want them or not. This, this is one of the interesting uh, puzzles about how technology works. You get these negative outcomes no matter what. Uh, even in spite of your best interests, even if you're aware of them, you can hardly stop them because they're just so built into the system. I, I agree with that premise. And it's like that would be, I regard that as a natural feedback from the universe slapping you in the head for not being aware of something that you should have been paying attention to, right? <laughs> and it's like the, um, that, I've heard this, this this technological determinism talked about as a technical imperative. Which is, you, can, you, you can do it, so you must do it, right? And it's like, okay, we'll give it a try. But and then then what we'll hear the apologists always at the end is that after the bad thing happens, it's like, well, nobody could have predicted that. It's like, really? <laughs> like you, especially in hindsight, right? It's like, okay, I don't think we're trying hard enough to uh, look upstream, like what's going to happen after we do the thing, or adopt the thing and it is that that's the the feedback on it i guess that this is a is um we need to widen our understanding of what qualifies as technology and i think to the anything that we use up to and including just words and phrases and um, discourse with one another and or talking about material things or other things that are not as technology so then so that points to the uh, primacy of philosophy as a uh, 
elementary um, technical expertise to be aware of that and to be mindful of it so that we uh, don't misapply our understanding of how we are to interact with the world that will cause us harm in the end. I, I don't know. It's just what a complex situation. Huh? <laughs> yeah. I, what's the name of the group that you're with in um, Helsinki? Uh, well, I mean, it's part of the University of Helsinki. We're actually working in the, 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 the College of Agriculture and Forestry. So oh. it's a kind of an environmental, in principle, uh, land usage, uh, you know, landscape and so forth. Um, uh, so that, that's, that's the part of the group. And, and uh, we're actually working with people both in, in the area of philosophy. So I'm working with some philosophers there and also with a group that's in, in the sort of their department of management. So they actually do sort of business models, right? How, how can we structure business and social models, economic models that are more sustainable? So the, this kind of, I'm working with both groups over there. It's well. like a uh, multidisciplinary. Yeah, so they're right. They're trying to get more interdisciplinary in their approaches. So, which is a good thing. I think that's what we need to do for sure. Very agreement. I, yeah, I think there's a, there's something to the, the general um, fraying around the edges of, of hyper-specialization and non-communication between disciplines is like really problematic. Absolutely, yeah. So more mindfulness for everybody, more awareness, um, more conscientiousness, less consciousness. <laughs> there you go. That's my theory on it. I don't, I don't know. I, I, well, I, I appreciate the opportunity to chat with you. I really do. And um, I'm hoping that we will be able to have another conversation. Perhaps I'll get a couple more of your books under my belt before I do. Sure. Absolutely. You yeah, I, you know, I would just I would just re remind people of my personal website. So davidscrivina.com, mm -hmm. I think is is you know kind of the the one little thing I spend a little time on trying to keep a web presence on. I don't I don't do social media, but uh, yeah, davidscrivina.com's got my books. It's got some links to some of the articles and things that I published in the past, and kind of just the news about me. So if people are interested or curious, I would I would uh, refer them there. Wonderful. We'll put that in the show notes, and uh, certainly. Uh, Look forward to having you again, sir. Good. Sure. Thanks, Thank thanks Bradley. Appreciate it. Thank Bye. you. Bye. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Best Medicine Podcast with Bradley H. Werrell, D.O. Don't forget to hit like and subscribe below, either over there or over there. Also, if you're interested in a medical consultation with myself, there's also information below.